Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We are highlighting adaptations from Season 9 over at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Robin and Marion was specifically based on the ballad, The Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods. We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel, Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations, Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series, and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical. Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir. And we looked at a trio of John Le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Plus, all three movies in our Agnieszka Holland series were based on books, Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore. La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series. All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
Bonjour. Mon ami Jacques Becker a retracé dans tous les détails une histoire vraie, la mienne. Ça s'est passé en 1947, à la prison de la santé. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Le trou is over. Poor Gaspard. Nous, on va s'évader, mon vieux. D'ici, d'ici même. Ça, en gros, c'est le plan du sous-sol de la prison. Oui. Ouais, je comprends, mais d'après toi, on se trouve la descente du coup. Mais il la surveille, regarde. Andy, this movie, we, uh, we are kicking off our, our French crime films series, which is A, very exciting, uh, and uh, B, very French. <laughs> is it? Yeah, I think so. Oh, yes, I think so. I can't wait to talk. In fact, oh, man, I feel like I missed a massive opportunity here uh, because uh, I I think we have a French trope corner, <laughs> which we need to start. Whoa. I am ill prepared for it tonight. But believe me, <laughs> I'm going to come back to that next week, if so appropriate. But tonight, <laughs> oh, my goodness, there is some good French stuff in here. Uh, Latrue is a French uh, prison uh, escape film. And yes. had you, I, I can't recall. Had you seen it? I had not seen this one. No, of our okay. of our three that we're seeing, I had only seen one. So, uh, which will be the last one we'll be talking about. Well, then I feel like we should start by talking about why we are doing this series, and then we can get into the film a little bit more. Um, how did how did we stumble on French crime? I was listening to the uh, the movies that made me podcast uh, done by the trailers from Hell guys, and they had Thomas Jane on, and Thomas Jane was talking about uh, some of his favorite French crime films, and I was just just totally drawn in to this conversation as they just named movie after movie, and they all sounded so interesting, and I had seen just a you know I, I'd only touched on a couple of French crime films probably. Maybe in film school, there was one or two there and afterward. And so I never really dug too deep, but I knew it was a genre that was out there, mm-hmm. um, you know, something that was inspired kind of by film noir and the, the French's love of the noir films that we were making. And um, I was just like, you know, this would be really interesting to explore and dig a little deeper to see some more of these films. So um, so I guess that's kind of where, where the impetus came from for this. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of how we chose the films, there are a lot of them. Uh, oh, there are the, a lot these of them. French crime films, and so we ended up with three on our list uh, that we are excited about. How did I? Now it's been so long since we. This was a Patreon thing, right? We threw a bunch out, and people voted, or did we just pick? Um, no, no, we picked. We picked the films okay. themselves. Right. They um, well, uh, we're very bright. Well, well, we were <laughs> for this one. <laughs> the thing that was frustrating about the French crime films is as we went through the list, we wrote down what all of the ratings were, the star ratings from IMDb. And of all of the categories of the movies that we're talking about in this uh, in this season, I guess, between now and the middle of the year, mm-hmm. like the vast majority of these films were r- rated really highly, like seven stars and up. 
And yeah. so it was like, you know, <laughs> picking, we said, well, we're just going to pick the three highest rated films. It's like, oh, okay, well, that's 8.3, 8.3, and 8.3. I remember I just, <laughs> you were on, you were in the car, I think, and I was reading you French yeah. crime films, and you said, really smartly, why don't you just read me the highest rated films? And it was a list that never ended. Yeah, I right, recall this now. Exactly. Absolutely. Yes. yes. Uh, they're all exceptional films. So we ended up, yes, with the 8.3s, and uh, we begin with the prison escape, the true. And I take that back. Eight point six is what the true is. <laughs> so we're way up yeah. there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We're in the stratosphere in terms of the IMDb six star rule. Exactly. And uh, that takes us to this nineteen sixty film directed by Jacques Becker, and we are in La Santé prison uh, with our prisoners. Uh, this film has an interesting open. It presents the case, I think, of the prison breakout movie in, I'll say, a compelling way, right? We have all of these. Um, they're all bad guys. How well do you think this film gets you bought into the idea of traveling with these dark protagonists in their efforts to uh, double down on breaking the law by breaking the law again? It's definitely a question when it comes to any sort of prison breakout movies and just kind of the genre where all of the characters that we're rooting for are criminals and we're rooting for them yeah. to escape. You know, that's, you know, we're kind of complicit in the nature of the crime in the case of the film. And so it's a very interesting way of telling a story because you are identifying with kind of bad characters. And I mean, I think what they do is they give you things to like about with these characters and things to root for and they make them seem very human so as you follow along with their their exploits you can still identify with them even if you wouldn't necessarily agree with what they're doing it's a little easier in the case of our primary protagonist that we have here in in gaspard because you know according to him he's innocent and uh, you know, it just makes me think back to Shawshank Redemption and the whole idea. Mm -hmm. of, oh, sure, everyone in here is innocent. You know? Everyone's innocent. Yeah, yeah. right. And um, but you know that that's kind of the setup of the story. And so perhaps as our lead protagonist, it's a little easier to identify with him and kind of want to see him succeed in helping the rest of his uh, cellmates escape, so that mm -hmm. he can actually break free as somebody who should be free. So I, I think that. It's tricky in this type of film, but I I feel that, like any film, the way that you do it is by making them seem like humans with, uh, you know, flaws and, and foibles and things that you just kind of can connect to. And I think they do a good job with this group, more or less. I think they do, too. But, but it's an interesting, it's sort of an interesting variation on a theme, right? And I think similar to Shawshank, but in that that's an apt comparison, because unlike other... Uh, I, I think French prison movies, right? When you think of the biggest of the big French stories, or, uh, you know, Les Mis is at the very top of the list, right? We've got these guy, the, this guy in prison and things are just bad. And he is, you know, the thing that we follow him with, the thing that we believe 
in him uh, is that you know he he did it for just reasons, right? He he and and so the whole you know narrative of the chase is this guy escaped, but he wasn't a bad guy. He was just trying to feed, um, you know, feed the poor, feed the hungry, and he stole some bread, and and that is that's like the legacy of French incarceration stories. That that, um, you know, it's a, it's unjust. And I, I think the period is such that, um, you know, that cycle is playing again in the 40s, right? The late the, the um, uh, 40s and 50s. And and so we have some of that injected into this movie, though they're all. I, I think more or less hardened criminals. The case they make with Gaspard is that, you know, he was trying to stop his wife from shooting him. So he grabbed the gun. It went off and it shot her in the shoulder. And that's why he got these in on this attempted murder charge, which is the that's the proverbial loaf of bread case. But I'm not sure how well it holds up be, when we you know, when we reach the climax of the film and he becomes essentially an unreliable narrator. Do we believe that he sat in the warden's office for two hours and didn't give up this case uh, as the the, you know, guards descend on their cell suddenly i don't trust him about his story about what went on in the warden and i trust him less about what he was telling everybody uh about you know what he got away with he's just is he just another murdering thug with a pretty face um so and, and I don't say that at all as a critique of the film. I actually think it's it's made more fascinating as a result of how they handle Gaspard and his and his journey with his own story. Well, it certainly spins a different, uh, you know, a different color to the relationship that he has uh, yeah. with the with his uh, girlfriend or his wife. The fact right. that she has now kind of dropped the charges, you know, is it? Is it do we believe that she dropped the charges or do we believe that that's potentially just a story that uh, the warden was was telling so that, you know, he could get some information out of Gaspard? I mean, it could be a variety of things. You know, he he may just be moving to another cell at the end and he kind of spun that tale uh, or he kind of uh, the warden spun that tale to get the truth out and then. Um, Gaspard gets really to go nowhere and is just across the hall now. Although maybe his term is short shortened, or well, maybe possibly. It spins- and let's not forget that that you know he the reason his wife was trying to shoot him is because he was having an affair with her seventeen year old sister, right? Yeah. Like, well, they he's- are French. <laughs> and so it begins. <laughs> No, I mean you're right. It, it is terrible, but I mean, it, but what I was saying though is, it, is it spins potentially even a, a different perspective on the relationship story? Because if what you're saying is true, and the the warden did come to him because he uh, he his wife did drop the charges, perhaps uh, that's a spin on the relationship. Maybe he did try to kill her, but she's a woman who kind of is living in fear, and she just she you know is in a terrible relationship but can't not get herself out of it and so she um she you know says that he didn't do it 
even though it's a terrible relationship, but maybe he is a criminal. So there's a variety of different ways you can kind of read into that, which I think makes mm-hmm. it for a much more interesting view on who this character is. And it's possible he's just a good guy and his, uh, his, he it was really exactly as he described. Who knows? But regardless, it spins it into a really interesting way. You make me feel like a hardened cynic, like all of that, like I walked, I walked out of, I came out of of my time with this movie feeling like it was an emotional Jenga tower of trust issues that just kept getting pulled out <laughs> from every single character. And it turns out like the most benevolent characters are the hardest characters, right? The, the uh, character who was in charge of just like engineering the escape, who just was the strong silent type. He just did his job because he knows how to do it. And like, uh, like he was the guy I found myself hanging with emotionally the whole time because I found I didn't trust anybody else, least of which pretty boy, uh, you know, our protagonist. Yeah, I found myself and this this is one of those things when you're dealing with criminals. It's like when you walk into a story, how much do you trust them? How much are you buying into their stories? I totally found myself kind of buying into all of them and I found them all to be. Uh, really interesting. And I I took everything at face value watching this film. And so it's interesting that that was the perspective that I ended up going in with. And so at the end, I didn't really have that, that, uh, those thoughts. I was like, wow, his, his wife dropped the charges and now he's, he's going to squeal because he wants, uh, he, he, that's a safer way to get freedom rather than following through with escaping out of the hole and uh, then he's a wanted man. And so it's it was, uh, I don't know, I just found it to be a really interesting way to kind of see how everything spun here. And it makes me want to watch the movie again immediately. Like I finished it. Unfortunately, I watched it super late at night. And so I, I wanted to start it again um, because I think now having finished the movie, I I will look at it with a completely different lens. It's one of those films. And uh, and, and I think it's a it's a real gift. Oh, definitely, definitely. Something else that's worth talking about is kind of the documentary approach that the story has. I mean, you kind of mentioned a little bit, you hinted at it with the beginning, mm-hmm. how we have this real character who who was involved in the actual breakout as kind of a character in the film. And he's introducing it and saying, you know, hey, I this was my story. I was one of these guys. And it's it's an interesting way to kind of set this whole thing up as this very realistic approach with a real person from it. Um, it's not just the fact that we have a real world character introducing the story for us, but also the fact that the story is kind of shot in a documentary style approach. In fact, Francois Truffaut, who is another French filmmaker, not to mention uh, kind of a, a critic and somebody who really examined films, he said, the film moves forward without any pauses or digressions. Every movement, every picture moves the action onward. For the five characters in Latrue, there's only one goal and only one way to reach it. They advance toward freedom as Becker advances toward the appearance of pure documentary. What do you, do you feel like the documentary style approach and we don't have score, some of the shots are pretty long, it just feels like we're just kind of watching things happen in a prison. Do you feel like that works to kind of lend itself to kind of creating tension and building uh, a story here that's effective? There, There is something to this film that doesn't qualify for me after the initial meeting of our protagonist right in the or the the guy who introduces it one of the the guys who was 
actually in the event at La Santé. Rain, well, who was that? That was uh, Jean Car- Carody. As uh, Carody, yeah, Carody, Jean yeah. Carody. Yeah, he was the guy who was who who performed as the character based on himself in the movie. And he's the guy. He's working on a car, and he comes up and he's talking directly to us. Right there's that fourth wall break. That's the first and last time that that kind of a a trick happens in the film, um, and. At no point do the characters acknowledge that the camera is there, right? It's just, it's still a straight up omniscient cameraman. And uh, I I don't feel, I don't get this sense that, and I'm curious your impression of this, that there is an intentionality that I would ascribe to a more documentarian approach. That that if if you were going to call this that documentary style, that you would actually feel like there is a bit of architecture to the story, um, where it's it's building toward um, teaching me something, right? Teaching me something about the experience. And this film, for the most part, is a just a, a, a freight train of almost accidental action, right? I mean, it just is a parade of long shots. Like the camera is there, might as well be sort of a security camera, right? The camera is there and it's presenting just what exactly they're doing and uh, giving us a sense of the real sort of time of the of the the pacing of the events it's i i made a note is like what is this this is as close to that feeling of anxiety of what i imagine a prison break must feel like when they start hammering away at the concrete and the way they use sound um and and i it 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 feels more hands-off i i guess more narratively hands-off than um than than what i would ascribe as documentary well it's definitely cinema verite which i mean they set the camera up and i mean like the the moment you're particularly talking about where it's like i feel i think it's almost like a five minute one shot of when they're trying to break through the floor and Mm -hmm. that just kept going and it was so i was so tense and uh, like uh, so nervous as they continued pounding on the floor because it's so loud and I mean, yeah. th- that's something that the intentionality of the sound and just using the sound design with that really long shot to build the your anxiety because, you know, they're in a prison and you're worried that this loud is the sound is so loud that mm-hmm. all of the guards in the prison are going to hear what's going on here. So it was a very interesting way for them to to structure that and and to kind of craft the story in a way that that allowed that tension to build just from kind of the nat- natural way that it unfolded in one long particular shot. You know, I think you're I, I think you're right. And I think I'm, you know, maybe I'm being too um well, because I mean what do you think about like about my experience I, well, here. I, I, I think maybe because I mean look at here's another example of what I would call very docu-style in the way that they're telling the story. When we have Gaspard going to pick up his package at the I don't know what it is, the kind of the mail desk or whatever it is. And you have the guard who basically the line of of prisoners is sitting there waiting as he opens up their package, goes through each item, (laughs) opens it, cuts it into pieces to make sure there's nothing inside. Uh, And and he he does it with every single thing. And then he packs it all back up, gives it to the person. The next person comes up and you go through that process over and over and over again. 
including when Gaspard comes up and you see the the guard kind of opening all of his different foods, cutting the cheeses, cutting the sausages, pulling mm-hmm. it open. It felt like very authentic. And it was done in a style that I I would argue is pretty docu-style. It's, it's done in a way that feels very much like this is how uh, the prison worked in 1960 in France. Yeah, I I can see that. And and what I love about that scene is that the the guard that's actually completely violating all of the prisoners' foods uh is dressed like a butcher. Did you notice that? <laughs> he's got the <laughs> the pants and the shirt and he's got the little apron and it's very adorable. What's um, what's I, funny I, is I, I just this is just a, a total aside. I just watched um after watching this, I watched um, the Grand Budapest Hotel, and there's a yeah. scene in the prison where all this stuff's coming in, but they don't touch the Mendel pastries because they're so beautiful. They they open yeah. it up, and they just look at them and pass it along. And I was like, that's all they needed was just some Mendel pastries. Totally. So here's a question for you, because you brought we, we, we're talking about how we have, uh, I, I'm terrible at pronouncing his name, but uh, Karudi, is that how you said it? Carodi, Jean Carodi, Jean Carodi, the real, the real criminal introducing this film. Does that end up kind of throwing you out of it a little bit, or what does that do for you? Because there is, there is kind of a line of films that do this, where they incorporate the real people into the story. So I'm thinking of some more recent ones like American Animals or Clint Eastwood's The 1517 to Paris. Possibly even something like American Splendor, which isn't really the same style, yeah. but still you're in, you're you're bringing the characters in as characters, and it's it's kind of this whole thing. So, where does it is it something that works? Yeah, I feel like that's a loaded question because two of the three of those, I think it worked very well, and this one I think works very well, and I think Eastwood's fifteen seventeen to Ferris was a oh dare I say a train wreck, and uh, I could it was it was nay unwatchable. So um, it it I I think it can really work, and in this case, it did work for me, and I think that is because one time does what it does, right? Um, I the the face just ends up blending in with the other faces in the cell block so quickly for me that uh, I I didn't give it another thought after it opened. And I think, interestingly, they didn't go back to it at the end. Like, there was no sense that there was any resolution to why he opened this show or this movie. Um, yeah, I think it could have been done without it. And maybe it's to its discredit that I literally gave it no other thought. But it's there. And so I think it's very intentional. And I think that speaks to what Truffaut was pointing out about it, is that this is a filmmaker who, I mean, this story is a very specific story. It takes place over a very few days as this group of inmates is working to achieve this goal. And all we do over the course of this film is watch them work toward getting to that goal. And that's it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a very Mm -hmm. simple story. And uh, I think by including that particular real person in it, it just helps it. uh, I don't know. For me, you're right. I mean, it's not something that you end up thinking about the whole time other than I do think about it when I see that, oh, he's actually missing fingers. I wonder if he lost those before they were doing the escape or during the escape. Like those sorts of things that run through your head. But still, it's, it's one of those things that for me gave me a sense of reality of when they're doing things, I'm like, 
oh, so this is how they were really doing it. It just it kind of puts it into a perspective where I I end up buying into things a little more and don't necessarily feel like the 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 filmmakers were changing the story to make it more cinematic or something. But Andy, I wonder though. I mean, and I I'll ask you. I recognizing it's hard to sort of retcon the the film that we just watched, but like, would they used this? I think so. I, I subtly is not the word, but it, it's just such a little nod toward the truth of the event by showing him in the very beginning. Um, that and and name dropping the director, we have to say that like part of his job in the beginning is to say that Becker has made this story. It is my story. It happened in my time in this prison, and here it is. Da da. But could they have accomplished the same thing with a title card? Right. I mean, th- this was based on a book. Right. It's based on Jose Giovanni's book. Uh, it is. Tells the story of the real escape attempt from La Sante in 1947. Could they have achieved the same ends by just giving us a stark title card and taking us right into the story? But it's more than that, because we have this character here and he's playing a character in the movie. So not only do we see that intro and yeah, if if that's all it was and then we had five actors playing the actors. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, they could have done it with with just the the title card or something like that. This was based on a true event, blah, blah, blah. But they they go to the trouble of having this intro and then this person who actually is a pretty good actor is playing a version of himself in the process of the escape. And for me, Mm -hmm. it lent a lot more authenticity to it. I think it's fascinating because at one, you're absolutely right. The guy's a pretty good actor. And I, uh, I felt like he fell right in with everybody else in the cast, like just perfectly. Um, I just wonder if, uh, if they're going to go that direction, if if part of the challenge is a little bit of a bait and switch that he is, he's playing a role in this thing by opening with his face and having him walk toward us from working on the car and giving him that sort of introductory starring role. It feels like he should be, to me, a bigger part of the movie, like a, a bigger sort of star part of the movie. And and the movie is uh, generally very even with the exception of uh, Gaspar's character who gets a little bit more of a of a starring role. Um, but he's kind of like the leader of the troupe, I felt. I mean, right. you know, they each had their own thing, but he seemed to be the one who kind of had the plan and the one who would, the first one to go into the hole and stuff like that. Like, he seemed pretty... Uh, in the know, like he had put all. That's of this interesting together. to me. I you didn't think he was that was that went to to Manu uh, Manu Borelli. Uh, I I I my sense was Manu was like he walked in. Manu was was the um was the guy who sort of owned the process. It, you're it was, right. It was. You're you know, right. He was yeah, kind of no. our hero thug. Well, he was, but and I, I guess it's one of those things where Manu seemed like he was the one who was in charge, but it really seemed like it was actually uh, uh, Roland who was the one who was kind of the one who knew what was going on and the one who well, kind of Roland made things was happen. Wozniak. Roland was the Wozniak. He was a yeah. total Woz. And it was Steve, <laughs> Manu was a Steve Jobs. And everybody, every successful organization has both. <laughs> they all have to have both. Right. Yeah. Well, it, so it, this is Woz's yeah. story of the pri- engineering of prison break. <laughs> We figured it out. Only took us about 40 oh, minutes. That's fine. Finally, finally. <laughs> now, it's, it, it is super fascinating. And here's something else that we're not taking into account. This 
film was released in 1960 in France. This was just four years after Karodi was released from prison. So it's possible that in France, people were more familiar with his story and they would more easily recognize him. And that would, for that particular audience of 1960s uh, French people watching this, it could have really kind of hit at home that much more as they were watching him do the introduction and then him playing a character throughout. Absolutely. And, you know, I that was the the first thing when I, I saw that you brought this up in the notes, like that I, I wonder if this is the 1960s version of stunt casting in France, right? This, like, this was it, the 1517 in Paris 15, in 1960. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> just it Becker was. pulled it off better. Right. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I think it was. I think this is this is that that this is what stunt casting looks like here. Um, you know, fifty years later, um, it aged pretty well. Yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, it's it's a really fascinating film. That uh, it's just one of those. I, I really do enjoy uh, Prison Break movies. I think that they can make for very exciting, gripping stories with uh, interesting characters. And uh, this one, I I really didn't know what to expect. The fact that really the entire film is just focused on this very specific task of these guys trying to get out. And that's all you do for the duration of the film is kind of journey with them in the process. I really felt a part of the process and just really was drawn into all the little minutia that they kind of had to put into place to make things happen, whether it was coordinating their uh, their jobs from the guards so that they always had giant piles of boxes to be constructing as their as their work I don't know what it is just but the work that they did so that they could cover up their hole the way that they cleaned things up just everything the way that they kind of ate their food and passed stuff around I just I found it all so fascinating to watch and just it was really engrossing I I thought so too I was really moved by the the busy work of their day-to-day experience in in the cell what do you think of the actual I, I, you know we'll call it production design but i mean they were modeling after a cell in la sante prison uh it's a real place it's not like they have to to worry about that what do you think of the accommodations consider they they were sleeping five people in a room it seemed pretty tight but uh you know i mean they made it work it wasn't it wasn't horrible they had cabinets they had space uh, you know it was it was okay i mean they obviously had leaky pipes and stuff that were problematic um i i have seen some prisons we have uh done some projects in old uh closed prisons and walking around in them it's uh you know they're they're not too different it, it was definitely cramped and you could i liked the way you could see them you know they just throw all the mattresses on the floor and squeeze them the way they are and folded up all of the hardware for the bed uh that you get a you get a sense that hey when this prison opened this this might have been a cell for a prisoner or two and <laughs> right. that there was hardware for a prisoner or two and now it has five people sleeping on the floor and you can get a sense of the just general state of overcrowding and yet everybody was pretty good-natured uh i i think throughout the except, whole thing except those plumber prisoners except the plumbers <laughs> they got theirs right they got a good slapping <laughs> You will not take those stamps. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, I, we should say, uh, if if I may, because I am fascinated by the fact that this was the uh, by prisons in general. This was a, a prison that uh, does exist, and I have been there. 
Uh, as in you this, stayed there? You had you spent some time? <laughs> I did. <laughs> I did some time. Yes. Uh, it, it, it is very close. I mean, it's it's not like downtown Paris, but it's very, very close. It's about a 10-minute drive from uh, Notre Dame, which is point zero in in. Paris, the the place, you know, where by which, you know, there's a little star on the ground and it's right, a place right. by which like everything is measured. And so it's about 11 minute drive straight line down one road gets you straight to the prison. And I think that, too, is telling right uh, about the sort of cultural significance of being in prison in Paris, um, that it, it's OK to put a prison right in the middle of a cultural center like Paris uh, in 1860, right, when this thing opened, 1867. Um, it is uh, it, it's it's just a norm that this giant uh, sort of monolithic structure, brick structure in the middle of this city stands there as a monument to uh, crime and to crime celebrity today. Uh, and it is still very much in operation. As a matter of fact, I, I love that that one of the Wikipedia pictures is the same angle that we get in this movie when they come up out of the, it's actually not the same angle, but it's at the same street corner looking down at the main entrance of this thing. When our two exploratory prisoners stick their heads up out of the manhole, it's looking down the street at the front entrance uh, of, of the prison itself. And so, um, you know, you go to Wikipedia, you can see the the daylight view of that and i it's um it, i i think it's just a fascinating um, monument um that is still very much very much in operation only three escapes have ever actually happened there uh, as far as they know um one of them in 1927 leon Daudet, after only 13 days in prison he had faked paperwork and he was he actually got them to release him which I think is awesome. Uh, Jacques Mezrin uh, was, he escaped from many, many prisons and he had such an affinity for disguises that they actually nicknamed him the man with a thousand faces. He led an escape with Francois Bess and Comment Rives, who uh, died in the process in 1978, and Michel Vajour. Uh, his wife, Nadine, lowered a helicopter into the prison in May 1986 and flew him away. Uh, so those are the only three that actually ever succeeded, which leads us to our, uh, once again, our main point. This is a prison break that did not succeed. Right. Andy, <laughs> does that make for a great prison break movie? I definitely think so, because you get your hopes up so much in prison break films. You know, you're like, oh, can they do it? Can they do it? Are they going to make it out this time? And it can be just it can be create a real nice tragedy when they don't. And and that's what I loved about this film is it builds up this hope within you as they're kind of going through such lengths to get out only to have at the very end it all just kind of falls apart in in kind of just such a small and and uh Kind of just a, just a, I don't know. The way was like, oh wow, it was just you know happenstance that mm -hmm. all of that happened with his wife, and that she uh, just it was kind of dropping her charges, and that was it. And so it's like, okay, we're over, and uh, I'm gonna you know ho however you read it, it ends up creating such a tragedy for the rest of the guys because. You know, you may not end up feeling like they're your best friends by the end of the film, but you certainly feel for them because, boy, do they go through a lot over the course of this film. 
I I think so too. I was I was spoiled only in so far that as I knew that I, I'd already read up on the prison because I was just curious about it and I was dumb and so I looked up La Sante because I thought I think I've been there and uh and and I saw there's a big section in Wikipedia that says there are only three escapes and looking at the years cross referencing because I'm a real smarty this story of Latrue is not in the three. So I knew this one wasn't going to be a successful escape. And it becomes a testament to the production, right? To Becker and his leadership and of of the adaptation and presenting it on screen that this thing is still a monumental success for me. It is riveting. It is anxious. It is terrifying. It is tragic. Even though I already knew it would fail, I I had my hopes up through most of the second act. When they got out, I it was it was heartbreaking to watch them go back in. Even though I knew they had yeah. to go back in to get the other guys, I knew they had to do it. I know, but you're like, oh, they're and there, they're is, there. There's just, a right just there. Run. Can taste just go. it. <laughs> oh God, yes. There's a cafe. Go get a coffee. Right. Uh, so it, I I think that it was um, it was enormously just terrifically well constructed that it could achieve that kind of hook for me and uh even though i knew i knew where it was going well i think part of that we need to talk a little bit about uh, we've we've mentioned the sound certainly and and some of the long Mm -hmm. lingering shots that that kind of stayed with us but i definitely think that we also have to talk about just a little bit of the camera work particularly the way that it changes from when we're in the prison and it's pretty straightforward. It's, you know, everything is lit pretty evenly. Evenly, Uh, But then you go down into the hole and they're exploring in kind of the, it feels like catacombs that they're kind of wandering around. Yes. And the way they light that. Yeah. yeah, It's, it's so dark. And oftentimes it's just by one little light source. And sometimes the camera will stop and the characters will just go down a long straight passageway. And you just see this little dancing light that just kind of keeps drifting farther and farther away. I mean, it's just, it's haunting and it's, it's beautiful. And it just, it really kind of creates this, this sense of space where you are and, and you just end up feeling so claustrophobic throughout it's just it it does everything to kind of lend to this suspense as to what's going to happen and it just it makes you so tense like as they're wandering and you know there are guards wandering down there too you're like are they going to open a door and like go right into a guard's face that sequence andy where they i'm so glad you brought that up because i think that is a great example of everything you're talking about here right the way they use light and shadow the way they let it play off of the incredible textures of the brick of the the uh, stonework right the foundational stonework and the fact that we have these this uh, for me the real standout part of this sequence underground is when they we have a wide shot and we're looking at the prisoners standing on one another's shoulders and like encircling a column as the 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 guards are moving on the other side of the column and on on one hand like i talk about it and it's like that's a that's like a vaudeville trick that seems like it's right off of a comic stage uh, from you know right. 1890 but it is incredibly intense it is incredibly intense uh, because it adds this extra layer of oh my god he's standing on his shoulders now gravity is involved like anything could happen and one of those 
those things is they could just straight up buckle under the weight yeah. of two men. Right. Uh, it, and these the police, the guards are, you know, five feet away. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> it's really dense. So back to Gaspard and the climax of the film, right? He goes down and he talks to the warden and they have their little conversation. And I think it, there's a real subtlety to how this the, this last sequence is structured. First and foremost, he's talking to the warden in a very congenial tone and he gets the good news from the warden that his wife has, has dropped the charges. And that's kind of it, right? Then we cut back to him going back to his cell and there is every reason to believe if nothing else happens, there's every reason to believe that he that was the extent of the conversation that he had with the warden and everything's OK. But it's only through the interrogation, the persistence of the other inmates in the cell with him that we find out that. And I love the way this is dropped, that he was actually in the meeting with the warden for two and a half hours. Right. We were not as the audience. We were not in that meeting for two and a half hours. The other inmates weren't in the meeting for two and a half hours. If this is such a documentary presentation, what happened for the other <laughs> two and a half hours? And thus begins the sort of mystery and the unraveling of the, our trust in Gaspard. I think that is beautiful and that it is paired with this unraveling of their plan uh, and the mechanics of their plan and all highlighted through one moment with this tiny toothbrush piece of glass mirror. And Ugh. I think you and I are equally uh, enraptured by how they use this mirror. Yeah, to create that little periscope tool, what a, an amazing visual that that allowed them to play with as as they would stick it through the the guards peephole and use it to kind of check to see if the hallways were clear and it works beautifully throughout the film so that they can see what's going on but holy cow does it give a great surprise at the end when he flips it around and sees pretty much all the guards in the prison standing outside their door just waiting to kind of crash in and invade and i mean that that created <laughs> Such Amazing. A, a moment of of like just a, a great twist and uh, just, I mean, huge adrenaline rush is all of a sudden, you know, you're right there with the prisoners going, oh, crap, you know, you know, they're trying to frantically get everything hidden and stuff. I mean, it, it just was uh, really exciting the way that that played. It was out. very intense. And to cut back to Gaspard standing against the wall as everybody's looking at him and then he screams right as the door opens and the guards come in and just, you know, start wailing on him. I mean, I think that was uh, that was incredibly well structured. Do you, what did you With a lot what of great whip expect? hands from face to face? Too. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. So great. Do you remember what you expected? Like, did you have an expectation as he's playing with the mirror? He's looking down the hall. Do you remember what you thought was going to happen? I, I didn't think anyone was going to be there. Like, I honestly was, like, convinced that they were going to make it out. Like, I just was, like, so right in their heads. Like, I was with those guys, and I was like, oh, they're going to, they're, it's going to be clear. They're going to make it. This is it. And, uh, yeah, I was not expecting that, uh, you know, to, or I, I, I don't know what I was expecting, but I just was expect I wasn't expecting all the guards to be standing there suddenly. <laughs> You're a real innocent. I am. I am. Kid innocent. That's so funny. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I had a feeling something was going to happen. I knew they were going to use it as some sort of a shock. And I thought it might be, you know, the old two guards coming, running down, uh, you know, or, or maybe it would be one guard like standing there, like one face. And the second he turns the mirror and you see all the guards, 
I I have this like sense memory of oh yeah that was the right decision. All of my right. ideas were dumb. <laughs> this was this was the right one. <laughs> he got it. He, he totally nailed it. That was so so good. Yeah, it was great. How do you think they shot that? Like if you were to if somebody were to say okay Andy it's 1960 go make this rig so that we can capture everything and make the mirror the right size so that it's a, a functional unit in the in the frame. Uh, I mean, that's a great question. And I, you know, it's tricky filming stuff like that because, um, because your, fo- your, your, the, the plane of focus is so shallow and, and mm-hmm. you're filming this thing that's so close. And to film it where you're capturing the details exactly of what the mirror is seeing, I, I don't know. And the know. mirror's on the Z axis moving away from the camera lens, right? So it's like you're filming something so small that it's, it, to, to my head, it seems like just even at the end of the mirror, it's going to be out of focus already. I don't know. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know how you say his name. Ghislaine Cloquet. Is that how you say yeah. the, the DP's name? Ghislaine, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't I'm, know. I'm, I'll go with that. Yeah, sure. I don't know what he was doing to uh, to film this, but I, I don't know. I just found it really fascinating. And and every time I would see it, I'm like, gosh, this seems really ahead of its time for 1960. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I, I know that, you know, the, the film industry is always trying new things. That's, you know, I think one of the great um, foundations of it is filmmakers are always taking the tools that exist and finding new ways to kind of um, do more with them. And I think that's very exciting. And it's, it, you know, it's possible they were just kind of playing with a way to kind of do that and uh, and use filming really close objects like that. Because uh, I can't remember, was the background when you'd see through the peephole and you'd see the mirror, were you seeing stuff behind the mirror, like beyond it that was also in focus or was everything else out of focus? Do you recall? There's one angle where it's it it is almost straight on the mirror, and so you're looking down, uh, you're looking down the hallway, and it's it's pretty much it, like everything is very very sharp focus, including what's behind it, like or beyond, including it. what's behind it. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Yeah, so that's how um, did they really that? interesting depth of field because you're getting a very close object yeah. with what's in it and everything behind it. Right. But it's that final shot that I'm I'm most interested in. Anyway, it's a fantastic shot and I it is an, a miracle of steadiness and uh, that we can get such a clear the only thing that's moving in the in the frame is the mirror itself and so um it's it's expertly put together and so tr- just brilliantly used. Definitely. Yeah. Fantastic work. Uh, by Becker and uh, Cloquet. I mean, they really put it together nicely. Not to mention the editing. I mean, Marguerite Renoir, um, who was uh, the ex of Jean Renoir, uh, who was uh, kind of the mentor to Becker. Uh, It's kind of this whole full circle sort of thing. I mean, she was one of the editors on this and definitely had a hand in making this this story kind of come together the way that it did. So it's a great team. And and Jacques Becker, who unfortunately died like weeks after finishing, I don't even think he got to uh, ever see the finished product. Um, yeah, I my understanding was that he died before the it the thing was even finished editing. Like it it they yeah, finished right. shooting and went into production it was yeah, I mean he didn't he wasn't even involved in a lot of that. Yeah, the a lot of the editing. So oh, the I post, I'm, right. I'm guessing that a lot of it kind of came through with, uh, with yeah, Marguerite having 
known him and kind of grown up with him, I guess, as a filmmaker, probably was able to tell the story the way that he wanted. And that also, I wonder if, see, this is really interesting. I wish that I knew the the backstories here. I wonder if, if Becker had planned that opening or if that's something that they added after he died as a way to kind of remember him a little more. Wow, you know, that's an interesting thing to bring up. It makes my whole position really (laughs) sad. (laughs) You know Um, what? I take it back. (laughs) uh, It it, it all is very intriguing. Uh, Just a fantastic film, though. Just uh, just with an amazing... I, I don't... I was so tense watching this film. I was just endlessly impressed with the work that uh, Becker and his team did here. Look at guys like Michel Constantine, and and he's got, you know, 64 credits to his name. We've got um, uh, Jean Carotti, who, you know, has this. This is his thing. Um, but obviously, that's because he was an inmate, and so he doesn't yeah, have Yeah, it was really his only film. But um, there were a few other films based on his life. Uh, Les right. Aventuriers and Roland were two other films. Philippe Leroy is uh, he's got 188 credits to his name so he he's um, you know was clearly popular Raymond Meunier uh he also he's got 55 um so these guys you know in in terms of their kind of star tour uh you know and I I should add Marc Michel as Gaspard he's got another 58 credits to his name through the this period and still um he died in 2016, so, uh, but he was still working. This was, for a, a good number of the people you just mentioned, their first film. Like, this was where they got their start. So they might have done 100-some hundred, hundred films, but the whole, Le True, was where they... Uh, that's what exactly, um, yeah. Becker was trying to do, right? Was, like, take these unknown guys and tell a story. You know, like, they, not all of them were inmates, Right. They were no like they were actors. And and I mean, you know, just, you know, unknowns. And that's what he was going for because of that. He was kind of looking for more of that documentary style, that that style where you didn't see faces that you recognized. And I think that's something we'll we'll see. uh, You know, I'm curious, I guess I should say, if we're going to find that in the next films that we watch in our series. Is there any reason to hope that uh, this movie has has a sequel <laughs> that eventually they got out? <laughs> you know, this has not been remade. Um, there's no sequels, nothing like that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like I said, I, I'm now kind of curious to look at these other films that were based on Caro D's life and kind of uh, see what other stories he had to tell that people felt. Let's make some more films about this guy. Yeah, well, Very he, intriguing, he yeah. figured he figured out how to get out of prison, right? <laughs> right. I know. Then I saw like he later hosted a game show on the radio. Yeah, something. I'm like, wow, <laughs> right, right. what an interesting life this guy had. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He's he's a real Hudson Hawk of '60s France. <laughs> Jeez, see what I did there? Oh, I see what you did there. Yes. All right. Uh, how did it do at awards season? Uh, it was, uh, you know, kind of one of those uh, films that had two wins, four other nominations at the BAFTAs. The, they have a category, the best film from any source, which I assume means any country. It lost, though, to Ballad of a Soldier, which was from the Soviet Union. Also nominated for Best Foreign Actor, Philippe Leroy, who lost to Paul Newman in The Hustler. 
uh, at Calle du Cinema. It was on the best film list, uh, which is a list of the 10 best films. It did make it to 10th place. First place went to Sancho the Bailiff. At the Cannes Film Festival, it lost the Palm d'Or to La Dolce Vida. The French Syndicate of Film Critics, they gave it the best film, and it in, in a tie with Breathless, I should say. And at the Juicy Awards, or Juicy Awards, I'm not exactly sure how you say that, Becker won the Diploma of Merit for Best Foreign Director. Well, that sounds like something. That sounds officious. It sure does. It doesn't sound prideful. It sounds <laughs> merely notable. <laughs> The diploma it, of merit. It is the, it's you, the official, you, you were here. <laughs> right. <laughs> Attendance has been taken. <laughs> uh, all right, Andy. The, so the big, the big one, how did it do at the box office? You know, this is something I was going to worry about with this series. Uh, this is just a uh, film. There's just no information about the financials of this film. It was uh, frustrating. I dug around but couldn't find anything. And uh, we'll have to see how I fare with the next two. This did open in France March 18th, 1960, before playing in at the Cannes Film Festival a few months later. The movie did open briefly in New York uh, several years later, actually, May 26th, 1964. It didn't have a wider release around the U.S. until Valentine's Day, February 14th, 1967, so seven years before it actually had a release around most of the country. But it did finally get its release, and, you know, all I can say is hopefully earn some money in the process. <laughs> We're nothing if not optimists. That's right. <laughs> Uh, okay. Well, I, you know, it's a great way to kick off our, our series on French crime films. I had a blast watching this movie. I, I, you know, I, I hope it does okay when we rank it. I do too. Head over to flickchart.com and uh, you will see all of the movies that we have ranked on this very show. If you swipe over in your show notes and you tap the word flickchart, it should take you straight to Le True in the catalog where you can add it to your own list and see how it stacks up against ours. All right. First up, we have Le True or The Lion in Winter. Oh, I'm going to take Le True here. Yeah, I'll take Le True. Oh, dear, Pete. Le True or Hudson Hawk. Hudson Hawk, shut I'm up. I'm sorry, I gotta go with Latrue. <laughs> I know, I know, but you know, just give it to me for, just give me the, we gotta go to the mat just for principle. We do have to go to the mat, yes yeah. we do. All right, this here we go. This is gonna upset people. All right. Let's see. One, One two, two, three, three. scissors. Oh, well, you win. <laughs> scissors, scissors beats cat. Cat, all right. <laughs> Latrue or Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Mm. Scott Pilgrim. Ah, uh, yeah, I gotta say Scott Pilgrim. Yeah, I mean, I love it how you had that pensive thought sound. Mm. Well, there's there is a lot to love about Latrue. Yeah, there really is. I mean, it, it, in in the context of Prison Break films, it's pretty high up there. Like this was really great film. Yeah. All right. So next up, Latrue or L.A. Confidential? Uh, L.A. Confidential. Uh, yeah, I'll take L.A. Confidential. The great Christopher Plummer vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> Latrue or Creed 2? It's almost a rhyme. Uh, Creed 2. Boy, two. I sure loved Creed 2. Uh, yeah, I'll say Creed 2. <laughs> Can't believe how much I love that one. Latrue or Predestination? Oh, my. Wow. A film with a lot to, uh, to mull over. I This one, I'm on the fence. I could go I'm going to say Latrue here. Yeah. Okay. You could, let's do it. Yeah. 
Latrue or the social network. Oh, social network. Social network. Latrue or Shaun of the Dead. You gotta go Shaun of the Dead. Shaun of the Dead. Latrue or live free or die hard. <laughs> okay. This uh, right. I I will probably say Latrue. Yeah, I'm I'm Latrue on this. I was ready for you. I was ready to give You're it to you to whatever fight? you wanted. <laughs> no, I mean, I could, yeah, yeah okay. but. You're flexible, I see. Yeah. Well, that lands Latrue in spot 102 on our chart. Uh, it, 102 out that of again? 400. That lands Latrue in spot 102. On our chart. Well, just one more time. I'm trying to get a, I'm trying to get a hip hop beat out of that. <laughs> <laughs> that lands Latrue. Uh, Above Creed 2, or no, sorry, that lands Latrue <laughs> just below Creed 2 in spot 102 on our chart. <laughs> 102 How'd... out of 439 films on our chart, which is about a, uh, which is about 77%. But Andy, how did Latrue do on your own flick chart? It. It wasn't, uh, boy, it hit some stuff that I just couldn't get above. And so, again, I feel like I need to do some re-ranking. But it landed in uh, spot 1208 out of 4293, which is, uh, you know, it's 70-something percent. Wow. Uh, mine, uh, that's fascinating. Mine ended up at, out of how many films now? I'm working on it. 1435. Um, 417 out of 1435, which is the 71%, Andy. Look yeah, at us. We're, we're flick chart bros. Pretty comfortable. Uh-huh. But the problem is that that means if I am to go by the algorithm for letterbox.com slash the next reel, this should be a three and a half star film. And that feels too low to me. Does it you? Oh, drastically. Uh, yeah, I saw where it landed. I'm like, oh, this film should be much higher than that. This is a straight up four and a half star film for me. Four and a half and a, and a heart. I really, really just was uh, blown away by this film. And I could see it definitely going higher on my rankings and uh, on future viewings. Why? Why four and a half stars? What is where did the where did it, the, the half star fall off? If we're looking at I don't even remember what we called it. The <laughs> The you know when the when you hear the stars falling off like what was the minute the star minute that it it stopped being question. a five star movie I don't know if it did and now you're making me feel guilty for not having said it was a five star <laughs> film like you set me up in some malicious way to there make me no question malice. my my no <laughs> my Andy, all of this comes from my own sense of insecurity because for me this was a five star film and then you make it a four and a half star film over there and I I thought we were flick chart bros and then you I know wonder what? our did conversation I made this a five star film for me too for crying out there. loud there hallelujah I am in no, I, I don't know. I just watched it and I said, oh, four and a half. So I don't know. I don't know. But our conversation, I found a lot more to love. So I'm okay giving <laughs> it five stars now that I've been bullied into it. Bullied? You've been rationalized into it, Andy. You've been gently reminded of your true feelings. <laughs> I appreciate that. And you're right. Uh, Gaslighter. Meg. <laughs> You always said this was a five-star film. <laughs> okay, so I know you loved watching Rafifi tonight. How do you feel about our next movie? <laughs> oh, you're In terrible. In all seriousness, uh, Andy, that, take, that ends our conversation on the true and uh, moves us on to something new. <laughs> hey. Number two of our series. That's right. We're going to be looking at Rafifi. 
which I uh, I have not seen. This is another one I have not seen. And this was actually made a few years earlier than this one. So I am curious to check this one out. It is directed by, I believe I mentioned earlier, Jules Dassin. Or Jules Dassin. How do you say that name? Jules Dassin? Dassin. Dassin. Jules Dassin. Yeah. Although he is American. So I don't know if he just said Jules yeah, well, Dassin. So, uh, Jules Dassin. Yeah. Uh, who, who? I mean, he was an American blacklisted filmmaker yeah. who moved overseas, and I am very curious to see this one. And because I've heard nothing but good things, so Rafifi will be next on our list. Rafifi from 1955. Mm, very exciting. I'm what? liking these French movies, Andy. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Oh, and how. Except for not really this time. <laughs> Everybody like just came to give a nice, honest review of their movie, and they generally quite liked it. Or generally they did, yes. There are, in fact, no one-star reviews for this movie, so we went to the bottom of the barrel, we scraped it, and it was shiny, spick and span. Hmm. Yes. As the kids say. Uh, but I did find dibs. I took the dibs on the one two-star movie or two-star review of this movie. Uh, well, let's go up. The you star okay. because uh, I got a three-star. Citrus. Citrus One uh, said uh, he, he watched this movie on DVD and uh, reviewed it in 2012. Prison breaks are an interesting subject, so this should have been a good movie. However, I found myself bored buy it. Whatever it takes to make a film exciting is missing here. <laughs> I don't know. Young Young Werner didn't like here. this. Didn't no. like this movie. He had a tough time with that one. <laughs> he had a really tough time. There was something, there was a secret ingredient that they left out when they made this movie. <laughs> so dumb. Penguins. So he is the deadly penguins. <laughs> Well, I've got a three-star by Eric Samber, who uh, who has this to say. Three stars, the not-so-great escape. Oh, punny. This is a good movie. Maybe a very good movie. But I can't say I was quite as thrilled as many of the other reviewers were. I'll say three and a half stars. Here's the scoop. Five guys in a French prison. One of them a newbie, attempt an escape by digging into the prison basement, worming their way through the prison well and sewer system, then pounding their way through cement into the city sewer system and freedom. This didn't strike me as being quite as intense as other viewers seem to think. There were some tense moments, but nothing that hasn't been exercised to a greater degree in similar movies. What I did like were the characters and the prison environment itself, the degree of respect which the authorities treated the inmates, and vice versa, was something you'd never see in an American film. One scene involving plumbers hired to fix a leaky faucet in the main character's cell borders on surreal. The characters are good. You'll like them. They work well together, share food and cigarettes, and don't try to muscle or bully each other. They have a common goal and do what they need to succeed. All share the load equally. 
And there was some clever stuff as well. Their procedures and gimmicks for tools and getting around and through things was a great pleasure to behold. On the downside was the pounding. For my dollar, (laughs) way too much time was spent hammering through floors and walls. At two hours and 22 minutes, a lot of time could have been shaved by editing down those scenes, and the movie would have been none the worse for it. It was simply unnecessary watching and hearing these guys pound through whatever the obstacle was. (laughs) This is a good movie. I liked it a lot, and the folks at Criterion did a sweet job in bringing it to DVD. It just wasn't quite the powerhouse for me that it was for some of the other viewers. (laughs) You know, it seems like he's looking for the Turner classic uh, colorized version of this movie. (laughs) That is, it is, uh, Turner's actually got rid of all the concrete scenes, and it's only 11 minutes. (laughs) It's amazing. Find it on TCM. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Today.